Happy Resurrection Sunday, everybody. How are you? Good. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Is Pastor Dave in the house? Pastor Dave, kind of work your way forward so everybody can see your lovely face. So just so you know, if you're visiting with us, that's Pastor Dave. We love him to death. Good to have you here. And then Pastor Doug, I think, is upstairs with the youth, right? So we are the three pastors on staff here, but it's good to be with you. Last night, I realized it was kind of funny. I met a few people that... Um, didn't know John had retired, so they came last night to get a good Easter message from Pastor John, and I said, you're only a week early, because Pastor John will actually be here next weekend. I just uh, didn't know if you guys remember that, but I'm pretty excited about that, that he and Kay will be, they're flying in on Thursday night, I think, he'll be speaking at Rock of Ages on Friday, and then of course the weekend services, so um, yeah, try to make it back if you'd love to hear Pastor John, I can't wait, it's going to be a great weekend next weekend. So good to be with you guys, Uh, it's a special day, it's an incredible day. And I am thrilled to be sharing from God's Word with you on this incredible day. Um, Last weekend, my wife and I, we had an enormous privilege to be sitting uh, to listen um, Rob Selleck deliver an incredible message last Saturday and Sunday on um, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. It was incredible. And then I had the privilege on Thursday, we post the messages online, and I had the privilege of listening to that same message on Thursday, uh, and it's recorded from Sunday, and I discovered that uh, Rob proceeded to confess to you that uh, on Sunday, my wife and I were at the NASCAR race um, with our nephew Jonah, and we were there all day on Sunday. But I, I really need to take this opportunity to say more than that. There's a little bit more to it than that, uh, as I'm sure you're, you're, you're anxious to hear. So, you see, I was at the NASCAR race seeking the Lord for what He would have me to preach on for Easter weekend, I promise you. I must profess what a success my time there was. Because, and this is the joke line, right? After many hours of going round and round, a winner for the message finally emerged. That's all I got. Thank you. I worked pretty hard on that joke. Let me open with this. For many centuries, Portugal, their motto was nothing more beyond. Their motto was nothing more beyond. Their world was limited to the familiar dimensions of the area around the Mediterranean Sea. They believed that to sail beyond the horizon, which they thought to be their border, would be to drop off the edge of the world. Eventually, voyagers discovered worlds beyond and brought back evidence to substantiate their claims. Decision-makers were compelled to alter their motto to simply more beyond. Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, assures us that there is more beyond the grave. We have Jesus Christ to guide us, and our destination is absolutely certain. Can I get an amen? We're in John 20 for today. We're going to cover the entire chapter of John 20, 31 verses. It's going to be an amazing, amazing ride. So turn to John 20, if you will. John chapter 20, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. The last verse... In this chapter is verse 31. I want to start there, and then we're going to go to verse 1. So focus on verse 31. John concludes this section by saying, But these 
have been written so that. Some of my favorite words in the gospel, so that. It just grabs my attention for what's to follow. So that. I've written these things, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah who came for our sins, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in that person, in that name. Wow. What we're about to read, John chapter 20, was written so that we may believe in Jesus, who He was, and that by believing in who He was, the Son of God, that we would have life in His name. Let's start at verse 1. We're going to read the entire chapter, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's John. He's writing this book. So Peter and himself. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together. And I love this. And the other disciple, he's talking about himself, right? Ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. A typical guy, right? I ran faster than him. I think it's hilarious. Like, do we really need that detail? Oh, yeah, we need that detail. If I'm writing, if I'm John, I'm going to write that in there. Yeah, I I smoked that guy. I just think it's hilarious. And stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Verse 6, and Simon Peter also came following him, and like Simon Peter would, probably me too, he entered the tomb, right? John doesn't, but Peter's like, I'll go in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so John says again, in case we didn't get it the first time, so the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, so obviously Mary came back. And she was weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb also. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned. And said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Interesting response. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. And so Mary came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. 
If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And then Thomas, we know about this story. Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came that night. And so the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, kind of harsh, he says, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was finally there with them. And Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Again, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. In verse 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But what has been written has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What a great story. What a great story. What a great chapter. Let's pray. God, as always, we invite you here to have your way with us. Give us the strength, Lord, to trust you because you are so trustworthy. This resurrection was something you promised about, promised your people about years and years and years ago because you deliver on every single promise. You are completely worthy of our trust. And so we trust you with our lives this morning. Pray that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said. Warren Wiersbe is uh, a pastor and a, a commentator. And uh, one of my favorite, and he says this about the Gospel of John. He says, if the Gospel of John were an ordinary biography of Jesus' life, there would be no chapter 20. There would be no chapter 20. Makes sense, right? He says, I'm an incurable reader of biographies, and I notice that almost every one of them conclude with the death and burial of the subject. Hmm. I have yet to read one that describes the subject's resurrection from the dead. The fact that John continued his account and shared the excitement of the resurrection miracle is proof that Jesus is not like any other man. He is indeed the Son of God. Let's jump to the first chunk of Scripture in chapter 20. That's 1 through 10. And I'm just going to skim this so you can follow along in your Bibles if you want, right? So Mary shows up when it's still dark and the the stone is rolled away. So she runs to Peter and John. And then John and Peter run back, in which we've indicated John beat Peter. That's very important, right, for some reason. I just think it's hilarious. And they see his wrappings, right? And they didn't understand completely, and they just kept looking. And then the disciples went away again to their own homes in verse 10. What's interesting is John, in this writing here, in this chapter, he does a wonderful job of keeping his audience, his reader, in mind by keeping them focused on the tomb. He keeps us in the tomb for many, many, many verses. He keeps us in that setting. The tomb is mentioned nine times in the first 11 verses. Nine times. And with every mention of the tomb, we are presented with the fact that somebody's missing. Every time he mentions the tomb, we are presented with the fact that Jesus isn't there. Everything, everything, I mean everything, that we hold near and dear about our faith, this thing that we call Christianity, hinges upon this tomb. 
it makes sense that knowing something about where Jesus is or isn't will also tell us something about who He is or isn't. Arguably the most important day in the history of the world, Resurrection Sunday. What could be more important than that? If He resurrected, then He's exactly who He said He was. God in the flesh. And we have to reconcile with that from every moment on. The tomb thing, this tomb thing, is everything. The tomb thing is everything for everyone. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what John wants us to hear in these first 11 verses when he mentions the tomb nine times. I need somebody to volunteer that can count to nine. If you can't count to nine, do not volunteer. That's why I can't. I can barely get to five and I kind of lose. Who, who can count to nine? Just anybody. All right, Susan, thank you for doing that. I know you were, gonna, you were looking at me like, please don't pick me, and that's just the way it rolls for me. Thank you for counting to nine for me. <laughs> Apparently not a lot of people can do that here, so I have a very select handful of people. All right. So when I get to eight, just raise your hand so I know I have one more. All right. Because I'm going to say this nine times, because this is what John wants his audience to hear. The tomb is empty. That's one. Okay. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Church, the tomb is empty. People, the tomb is empty. World, the tomb is empty. The tomb, it's empty. Seven, I got two more. The tomb is empty. Thank you. The tomb is empty. What is more important than that reality? The tomb is empty. And we have to reconcile that every day moving forward. It's interesting that the first witness of the resurrection or the empty tomb was a woman. It's what Christ came to do. He came to reconcile, right? And in Galatians, Paul writes that you know, through Christ there's neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, that we are all one in Christ. And so a woman shows up first. And the introduction of Peter and John coming, because why we said John wrote this so that we would believe, right? So the introduction of the two disciples showing up in the story most likely has the secondary function in supplying the needed witness of the two men of the empty tomb because it fulfills the Jewish requirement for a valid testimony in that time. You had to have at least two witnesses that had to be male because John wrote these things so that we would know that He is the Son of God. Both men deserve credit for having the courage to run into enemy territory, not knowing what might await them. What did Peter and John see when they got there? They saw grave clothes lying there like an empty cocoon, still retaining the shape of Jesus' body. The empty cross and now an empty tomb are God's receipts telling us that a debt has been paid in full. May we never forget the most important day in the history of mankind. John uses three different words for the word, uh, three different Greek words for the word saw. Let me po- turn, look at verse 5. This is, you know, John got there first, right? So he stooped and he looked in and he saw the linen wrappings. That word saw is blepo, to glance in or to look in. John just takes a glance. Read verse 6. And Simon also came following him and he entered and he saw. And that's the word audio to look carefully, not just to glance, but to look carefully and to observe. 
And then in verse 8, so the other disciple, John, because Peter, when he had come first to the tomb, also entered, he saw and believed. And that's idon, to perceive with intelligent comprehension. Interesting. Interesting. Their resurrection faith was emerging, and that's how it is with us. We wrestle with Christ, we wrestle with His resurrection, and sometimes, and today might be one of those days where we're just taking a glance. That's okay. Take a glance. That's a good start. And then maybe you'll look a little bit more carefully and you'll observe some things. And then you'll get to that point, hopefully, where you can perceive with intelligent comprehension. God says for us to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so God can take us along this journey from glancing to looking more observantly to having an intelligent comprehension that He is indeed the Son of God. came to die for our sins. We get to use this for sure. Absolutely. It might seem incredible to us that Jesus' followers did not expect him to come out of the tomb alive. On some level, that should be surprising to us as readers. On numerous occasions and in various ways, Jesus spoke of his resurrection on that third day. Why are they so surprised? Although the glorious truth of his resurrection was not immediately understood, it was gradually understood even by his closest followers. It was the same way with me. It just took me a while. It might have taken you a while. You might be in that journey where it's taking you some time to really recognize Christ for who He is. But when you do, what a difference it makes. For Mary, it meant moving from tears to joy. For the disciples, it meant going from fear to courage. And for Thomas, from disbelief to absolute assurance. Wherever you're at now, Christ can take you to a completely different place if you engage Him for who He is. The next chunk of Scripture, verses 11 through 18. So Mary had come back, and she's standing outside the tomb, and she's crying while she's looking inside, and she sees these two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus had been lying Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she just didn't know it was Jesus. And he said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She thought he was the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you laid him? And I will take him away. And he said, Mary. And then she realized it was him and replied in Hebrew, Rabboni which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And so she came and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and this is what he had to say. When, when Mary looked into the tomb, she saw two angels in white. And their position at each end of where Jesus' body had lay makes us think of the cherubim on the mercy seat in the sanctuary of Yahweh from the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 25, 17, 18, and 19. As if God was saying, there is now a new mercy seat through my Son and the way is open into the presence of the Almighty God, the Creator of the universe. Wow! 
On Good Friday, we talked about when Jesus breathed his last, that temple veil tore in two from top to bottom. You know how thick that thing was? It was inches and inches thick, and it just split in two, which let us know that we now have rightful access to God because of what Jesus did. That access that was cut off through Christ has been completely open to us. It's incredible. It's just really incredible. Jesus asked Mary the same question that the angels asked. He said, why are you weeping? She was weeping when she could have been praising. She was weeping when she could have been praising. Sometimes we're just in that place of weeping because we don't recognize or we don't engage Jesus for who he is. And so we remain in this place and Jesus is like, why are you weeping? You should be praising. And in our lives we're weeping. We're doing something and God wants to do something else with us if we would engage Jesus differently. Why weep when we can praise? But he doesn't rebuke her because God's loving that way and he's so patient and kind. But he tenderly revealed himself to her simply by calling her name and said, Mary. He brushed up alongside of her. That's what Jesus does for us. He finds us in that place where he needs to find us. In her recognition of him, she cries out, Rabboni. And it's really an emotional highlight of John chapter 20 because Mary is desperately trying to find Jesus. And she says, Rabboni. And the Jews recognized three levels of teachers. There was the rab, the rabbi, and then the rabboni. It was the highest. It's only used two places in Scripture, here in John 20 and also in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Turn to your left, and we're going to go to Mark 10. And I think this is significant. The only other place we see rabboni in Scripture are these two places. Mark 10, starting at verse 46. They came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, Jesus was, and a large crowd. And a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he had heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, recognizing, even though he was blind, he knew who he was in his heart. And he says, have mercy on me, knowing that mercy came from Jesus. And many were sternly yelling, uh, telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. May we always be in that place. Without Jesus and without his mercy, we're blind. We need, we should just desperately cry out to Jesus, have mercy on me, and he will. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And so they did. Take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Verse 50, throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus and answering him said, What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said, Go, your faith has made you well. And off he went with his regained sight. Two places, Rabboni. So you have Mary who calls him Rabboni, who saw him with her eyes, but did not her heart accept him as being Jesus risen from the dead. For some reason, she could see, but her heart was not there yet. And then you have Bartimaeus, who couldn't see here, but he could see here. So often we think we need stuff going on up here in our head and with our eyes. And Jesus said, it's not about that. It's about your heart. So if you have a heart that sees or, or eyes that see or a heart that doesn't see or eyes that doesn't see, it doesn't matter. Jesus knows how to come alongside you so that you can see with your heart. It's always an issue about the heart with Jesus. Jesus' warning 
which seems kind of harsh back in John 20 when he says, stop clinging to me in verse 17. It deserves some attention. For one, clearly, if you know, you know, Jesus doesn't ascend until 40 days after his resurrection. And then it's 10 days after that when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. So it's 50 days after Jesus's resurrection. Hence the term Pentecost. And so, but what he's really saying is that moving forward, Mary's relationship with him would be through the Holy Spirit. That just four chapters earlier in John chapter 16, he actually says to his followers, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. The Holy Spirit with power will come upon you. It's the next part of the progression of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that enables the progression of the gospel to happen. I think Jesus is constantly taking us to the next level. It's what he does, right? We get in a place and he takes us to the next level. And we get in that place and he takes us to the next level because his work's not done. And if his work's not done, we have to just keep progressing with Jesus, right? So he says, stop clinging to me. My work's not done. It's to your advantage that I go away so I can continue my gospel message. It's not, Crucifixion Sunday is not just about the crucifixion. It's also about a graduation, about what's next. Jesus doesn't keep us in the tomb. He doesn't keep us in that place. He says, what's next? My, both my daughters graduated from college, so what's the, what's the question? You going to get a job? Right? Like, yeah, you graduated. You got a job lined up. Like, what's next, right? It's just life. And he says, stop clinging to me. And I think in our walk with the Lord, we get into a place with God, and we like that place. We want to just hang out with Jesus and say, wow, man, you made it. This is pretty cool. You actually rose again. That's awesome. Let's celebrate. Let's kind of hang out. And so we cling. We cling to Jesus. And so he takes us us and our walk with him into a place. And so Mary wanted to stay in that place. And Jesus says, we're not staying in this place. Don't cling to me. You want to cling to me? Move with me. Jesus is moving, man, all the time. And we cling and we get stuck in places. And I've been stuck in places with Jesus and I clung to him. And he's like, yeah, uh, right? Don't get clingy, Mark. We do. We get comfortable, if you will. We like that place we're at with Jesus. So we stay there. In verse 18, Mary goes and announces to the disciples. And she not only shared the fact of his resurrection and that she had seen him, but she also reported the words that he had spoken to her. Because that's what he told her to do. Speak the words. It's not about the eyes. It's about our heart. And again, we see the importance of the Word of God. Mary could not transfer her experience over to those disciples. But she could share the Word of what she experienced, right? It's the Word that generates faith. One of my favorite scriptures, Romans 10:17, says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of God, the Word of Christ, the Word about the resurrection, our Savior. Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing the Word of God. 1 Peter 1, 23, 24, and 25 says, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. This, so many people in the early years try to wipe this thing out so that it would never be, continue to be mass-published. 
It's just nasty how many people have tried to wipe this thing out, but it has endured forever. For all flesh, you and I are like grass, and all of our glory like the flower of grass. It withers, and the flower falls off, but God's Word, the Word of the Lord, endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached or proclaimed to you. If you don't like to be preached to, no problem. I'll proclaim then. It's the same Word. I have no problem proclaiming a truth that endures forever. It's remarkable to me. Our third section of Scripture starts in 19 through 23. So let's skim through that. So it's still that evening, and the doors were shut, and the disciples are there for fear, and Jesus is there in their midst. I don't know how Jesus got there, but I'm sure He figured out a way, right? And He says, Peace be with you. And when He said this, He showed them His hands and His side, and they rejoiced because they saw the Lord. And He says, Peace be with you again. As the Father has sent Me, I also send you. What an interesting time for that verse. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Wow. How did our Lord transform the disciples' fear into courage? Well, for one thing, he came to them. Jesus came to them and reassured them. When you need reassurance, if you want reassurance, Jesus will find a way to come to you. He can do that and reassure you. He's that gracious. His first word to them was the traditional word shalom or peace. God extends peace to us all the time. And that's why He sent Jesus to die for us and to rise again so that we can be at peace with God. God declares peace to those that would believe in Jesus Christ. As with the Great Commission which is recorded in Matthew 28, Jesus decisively gave His followers the command to go into the world and continue His ministry. In verse 21, He says, Peace be with you. Right? They're just realizing it's Him. And right when He says, Peace be with you, He says, As the Father has sent Me, I'm going to send you right now. And He breathes the Holy Spirit and off they go. What's next? It's so interesting. When Jesus saw that the disciples' fear, the disciples' um, fear had turned to joy, he commissions them in that moment. It was the dedication of his followers to the task, listen to this, of world evangelism. Like that, whatever party that was in that room, hey, Jesus is here, like, oh, oh gosh, put the champagne away, the stri- no, no streamers. It's like, yeah, I'm here, let's go, rock and roll. Uh, Father sent me, I'm sending you, breathe the Holy Spirit, next. It's it's intense. He commissions them to world evangelism. Really. We started this chunk when it says they were behind doors in fear. But because of His resurrection, because of His presence in their lives, these disciples went from being fearful or being full of fear to being fierce. From being fearful to being fierce. From fear to fierce. I want to be fierce for Jesus, man. And the more I engage Him, I am convinced I will continue to become more fierce for Him. It's what He wants. It's our call. I've said it a couple weeks ago. It's a high calling to be the church, to be fierce for the Lord and not be operating out of fear. We are to take His place in the world. If we weren't, He'd still be here. 
In John 17, just a few chapters earlier, this is what he says. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. What a tremendous privilege and what a great responsibility for you and I. To enable them to respond to this task, they received a precursor or a deposit of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit when he breathed the Holy Spirit into them. Almost like, like I said, a deposit that was going to come 50 days later. It must have given the men great joy to realize that in spite of their many failures, the Lord was entrusting them with his word and with his work. Let me say that again. In spite of their many failures, the Lord was entrusting them with his word and with his work. In spite of my many failures, God has entrusted me with his word and with his work. In spite of your many failures, God has entrusted you with his word and with his work. In spite of your and your and your and my many failures, God has entrusted us us with his word and with his work. And if we recognize that, then we can go like this. If we don't recognize that, we're going to go like this. Because we're all messed up. Just like those disciples. Were they really in a place to be commissioned for world evangelism? No? Yeah? Are we? No. It doesn't matter if we're ready or not. It's what God is expecting of us. And that either encourages us or scares the heck out of us or both. I'm so glad to be doing ministry with you guys. Such a privilege. Jesus stated that if the disciples forgave anyone... They were forgiven. If they did not forgive them, they were not forgiven. And let me just unpack this a little bit. We don't have time. God's forgiveness, as we know, is not dependent upon human forgiveness, but rather it's extended by God as a result of our response to the gospel. In other words, as they went forth to proclaim the gospel and announce the good news of salvation through Christ, if sinners would repent and believe in Jesus, their sins would be forgiven. And of course, if they didn't, how could they be? Fourth section, John 24, chapter 20, 24 through 29, verses 24 through 29. So now we get Thomas. I love this part of the story. Thomas, right? He's with them. Jesus came and the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord, but he said, unless I see and put my finger where the nails were and into his side, I will not believe. And eight days later, the disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them and Jesus came and the doors were shut and he stood in their midst and said again, peace be with you, which is just so great because Thomas didn't hear that the first time. And he said to Thomas, reach here with your fingers, see my hands, reach into my side, but do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas just simply answered and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are you and I here today who did not see like Bartimaeus and yet believed. Mm. Personally, I think Thomas gets a bad rap. I think we're a little bit too unkind to Thomas, personally. The whole lot of them, if you read chapter 20 again, they're all in doubt, but not really sure, right? We saw what those words saw, right? It's like they peek in, you know, is it really, is he gone? Okay, I don't know. And they take off back home and they're shut in a room and they're scared for fear of the Jews. It's like they're all doubting on some level, right? We call him Doubting Thomas, but Jesus does actually uh, doesn't rebuke him for his doubts. He rebukes him for his unbelief. He rebukes him for his unbelief. Doubt is often an intellectual problem. Unbelief is a moral problem. It's a heart issue. Like Thomas, we simply will not believe no matter what. 
And that's what it says in that verse when he says, I will not. It's a matter of a will. And sometimes we just hunker down in our will and no matter how much is presented to us, we just choose in our will not to believe. It's ugly. Consider, though, how gracious our God is. In the Old Testament, he grants Gideon, if you know the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, and Gideon had all these tests of his faith. Oh God, if you would just do this, if you would just do that with the fleece. And God's like, alright dude, and he goes through this motions with Gideon to try to convince him. It's just nice, it's God being generous, right? And he does the same thing here with Thomas as well. God's just gracious to us that way. Jesus' words, literally, when he says... Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. It's a directional thing. In other words, stop becoming faithless. Start becoming full of faith. And so we go down the slippery slope and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Stop becoming faithless. Turn it around. Repent and start becoming full of faith. What's interesting is that there's no record that Thomas ever actually accepted the Lord's invitation when he said, go ahead. Stick your fingers here, stick them there in my side. There's no record that he actually did that. He simply just said, my Lord and my God. Good for him. It may sound sophisticated and intellectual to question what Jesus did, but such questions are usually evidence of hard hearts, not of searching minds. When a a skeptic says, I will not believe unless, I will not believe unless, and whatever they ramble on after that, I will not believe unless... They're actually admitting that they do believe something. Let me tell you what they do believe. That person actually believes in the validity of the test or experiment that comes after I will not believe unless. Whatever litmus test that they're going to put in, whatever comes after those words, I will not believe unless, means that they're believing in their test or their experiment or their scientific approach. If they can have faith in that, why can't they have faith in God, the creator of heaven and earth? Interesting. Reality check. Everybody here lives by faith. Everyone in this room lives by faith. The difference is in the object of that faith. What is the object of your faith? I, Christians, put our faith in God and His Word. Other people put their faith in themselves. It's true. I was there. The last section of verses, just the last two, verses 30 and 31 Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book, but, they, but what has been written, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Last week when Rob preached, he talked, did I mention this already about the crowds? Did I say this already? Rob mentioned that some of the crowds that Jesus preached to were 10, 20,000 strong. But they didn't believe. They were there. They heard him. They saw him. They witnessed his miracles, but still did not believe. And John's saying, I can write a bunch of things to you. How much more do you need? Let me ask you this. this true confession time, right? I like true confessions. Don't, don't judge. So I played baseball in co- through college, right? So if you're a baseball player, you know, you, you have a little bit of that tobacco once in a while, right? So I chewed tobacco, you know, playing ball and, and, and a few years after that, right? So some of us have had or do still have a tobacco habit. It is what it is. It's fine, you know. Is tobacco good for you or bad for you? Raise your hand if you think it's bad for you. Okay. We all know it's bad for us. I knew it was bad. If I put out more proof that tobacco is bad, does that change anything? 
for most people who engage, right? More proof wasn't going to help me stop chewing tobacco. More proof didn't help a lot of people smoke, right? We either will or we won't will to do or not do, right? And that's what John's saying. You need more proof? It's got nothing to do with the proof. Your heart's the problem. I've written enough for you. We know it's good to diet and exercise. We know that either you will or you will not. We must not look at Thomas and the other disciples and envy them as though the power of Christ's resurrection could never be experienced in our lives today. Oh, it can. That's why John wrote this gospel. That's why we have the Word of God, so that people in every age could know that Jesus is God and faith in Him brings everlasting life and abundant life. John earlier in 10.10 says, I came that, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly, to have eternal life, but have an enjoyful, abundant, wonderful life now that we can experience heaven on earth today. It's not necessary to see Jesus Christ in order to believe. Yes, it was a blessing for sure, for the early Christians to see their Lord and to know that He was alive. But that's not what saved them. They were saved not by seeing, but by believing. The emphasis throughout the Gospel of John is on believing. There's about a hundred references in his Gospel about believing. In fact, it is faith in the Word of God that the Lord and Jesus really wanted to cultivate His disciples. Everything that God said in Scripture about what was going to happen to Jesus happened before it happened and while it happened and after it happened. God has met every promise of everything ever written in His Word. Turn, and we're going to close with this. Turn to 1 Corinthians, a little bit to your right. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You have John, you have Acts, you have Romans, and then you have 1 Corinthians. Fifteen one through eleven. The heading of, of my chapter fifteen says the fact, the fact, the fact of Christ's resurrection. Verse one. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I proclaimed to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which was proclaimed to you, unless, of course, you believe in vain. May it never be. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve, and He appeared to more than five hundred at one time, most of whom remain until now, meaning they're still alive, but some have passed on. Then he appeared to James and the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul writes, he appeared to me also. I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, proclaim the Word of God, and you believed. And lastly, it'll be on the screen, is First Peter 1, 8 and 9. Great closing verse for our time this morning. 
And though you have seen Him, you have not seen Him, although, church, you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice. What a rejoicing day. With joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Ah. What a glorious day. I'm going to pray. Brian's going to come up and lead us in a closing song. And when we're done uh, with our closing song, uh, our prayer team will be available to my left and to your right. Thank you for being here. It's really good to be with you guys. And I pray that you enjoy the rest of this Easter weekend. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this church that receives it so well. Lord, we thank you for the resurrection, but we also thank you for the reminder that your work is not done and you have sent us. And so, Lord, may we, through your power, receive that challenge and that calling to continue your work. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you.